lesson, and we just simply titled this lesson, Introducing First Timothy. And I want to read the first three verses, and I'm going to slowly make our way through each of these sentences in the first three verses of First Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought you to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. No other doctrine is what he said. Now this is one of those letters that the Apostle Paul wrote towards the latter period of his life. Second Timothy likely was the last letter that he wrote. But this one here is what is called a pastoral letter because it covers a lot of issues that have to do with ministering in local churches. Everything from those who desire to be a bishop or a pastor to those that desire to be a deacon. He even talks about things that will take place in the last days. He tells us about how to handle the elderly, how to honor our widows. But in these passages that I read, you'll notice that in our English version, the first word is Paul because he's the one who's the author. Now, who was Paul? Initially, his name was Saul. He was a Pharisee. He was very religious, and he was a man that was fervent in the faith of the ancient Jews. And his persecution of the early Christians was great. In fact, the Bible says in Acts chapter 7 that when they stoned Stephen, that they actually took clothing and laid it at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul. This gentleman had received letters from various priests to go all the way to Syria to apprehend Christians and to incarcerate them, and the Spirit of the Lord gave him a wonderful vision. Jesus came to him on that road to Damascus, and suddenly he was blinded by that light. And in that light, Jesus spoke to him, and he ended up becoming submissive to the will of God, and he became a Christian. So Paul then immediately began to proclaim the gospel, and he went on and had one, two, three, if not more, missionary journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts. Now notice in verse 1, the first sentence, it describes him as an apostle. So we wonder sometimes, what is that? Well, Jesus selected 12 men of all the disciples that were following him, and he declared they were apostles. The Greek word simply means someone that is sent. Now, we know that there will never, ever be 12, another 12 apostles of the Lamb. In fact, the book of Revelation describes them having their names in the foundation of that city. God used them to write scripture, to found the church. Even the apostle Paul, who saw Jesus in a vision, is called an apostle. But there will never be any other persons 
who will be used by God to put another book in this canon. And if anybody tries to tell you that they have a revelation from God and they're writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just run from them like you would someone that had a flesh-eating disease. Just stay away from them. However, the Greek word apostle, it does mean generically someone that has been sent. The Latin text or Bible translates the word apostle with what we know in English as a missionary, the word missionary. So when a, a person is sent out from one nation to another or one place to another, if that person truly is a God-called missionary, in a lower sense of this word, that person can be an apostle. But we know from 2 Corinthians 12 and 12, Paul says, Truly the signs of an apostle are wrought among you in patience and mighty deeds and wonders. So anyone who calls themselves an apostle should have a ministry accompanied by not the writing of new scripture, but by the activity of the Holy Spirit in their life. And other than the twelve that follow Jesus, there are at least ten others that are mentioned in the New Testament. Sometimes the word is translated in the KJV as messengers. But if you were to read Thessalonians, you would see that Paul considered the members of his team to be apostles. That's Timothy, Titus, and a few others. Well, that first sentence, again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, it speaks of Jesus Christ. Now, let's always remember when we use that phrase, Jesus is not his first name with Christ being the last name. Jesus was the name given by the angel to Mary and Joseph, and it certainly means someone who will save, and Christ is the word that designates he's anointed. He's the Messiah or the fulfillment of the Old Testament aspirations and Old Testament prophecies. When we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, every time that is mentioned. Then when he says, by the commandment of God our Savior, there were plenty of people who doubted Paul's apostolic work. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see there were several individuals that thought that Paul wasn't truly an apostle. And Paul goes on to tell them, if I'm not an apostle to anybody, I'm an apostle to you folks in Corinth. He tells them that. So he says, my relationship with you is such that you are my fruit and you understand what I'm doing. But God is the one who designates and puts people in office. Now we have... Five specific ministries, according to Ephesians, that, that operate in the church as far as in a, a preaching-teaching type role. That is the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. All of these offices are offices to be filled by people who've been called and appointed by God. Now, we've all met people who probably shouldn't be pastors. But maybe somebody told them, you look like you make a good pastor. Or somebody told somebody else, I think you could be an evangelist. And plenty of people have stepped into those roles out of the will of God and produced a lot of trouble. But Paul here says, 
that he's an apostle by the commandment of God. It was God that spoke and produced this role for him. He didn't begin as an apostle. He started as a Christian. He exhorted people in the faith. By the time you get to Acts chapter 13, it says he was in the church at Antioch. He was either a prophet or a teacher, or he was a prophet and a teacher. Then when he goes on his missionary journey with Barnabas, soon thereafter, he has the label apostle. So no one starts off at the top like that. We all start off down here as a Christian. But this man was called by God to do a significant work, and the Scripture describes God here in verse 1 as our Savior. Now, of course, if, if we have a Savior, then that naturally means we have to be saved from something. So we're saved from sin in order to be saved to righteousness. He pulls us out of darkness in order to bring us into the light. Now, some people find that offensive, the whole idea that there is a Savior or a need for a Savior. God is a Savior because he rescued Israel out of Egypt, which is a type of bondage, the house of bondage. Having brought Israel, his covenant people, out of Egypt, he redeemed them, so they belonged to him. We, too, as the church have been redeemed out of the world, out of sin, out of bondage, in order to be debtors to him. We've received his name, and we've become a holy nation and a royal priesthood. So that makes him our Savior. And when you think of what he saved you from, he saved you from the world, he saved you from the flesh, he saved you from the devil. He essentially saved us from ourselves. Because we were on a path that was destructive. When Paul, in writing to Timothy, describes our Lord Jesus Christ, that's a very good description. Lord means master, someone in control. If we claim that Jesus is our Savior, that he's the anointed one that came to deliver us, and we're now indebted to him because of what he did on the cross, dying in our place, if we've accepted him as our Lord, he has a right to tell us where to go, what to do when we get there, how to live in the meantime. He has a right to tell us what to think. He has a right to take this body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, tell us how to dress it, how to conduct our behavior. He's our Lord. That means he can tell us what to do. It's the same thing with pets. Anybody that has a pet knows that owner of the house is the master or Lord of the pet. And the pet cannot, and it's not possible for the pet to dominate that house. And if it does happen that way, it's only because someone has given up authority and rule and power. Well, I can assure you when it comes to Jesus, he's not going to give it up. He's not going to give it up. He, he's determined to, to guide us by our heart and to lead us by the Holy Spirit. Now, Because God is our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, you can see at the end of verse 1, he describes the Lord as our hope. Now, what is hope? Now, found, the foundation of our faith is broad. 
and it was laid by the apostles and prophets, the scripture says. But hope has to do with something, something upwards, something pointed towards the future. If I say I hope to be able to do such and such, it means it hasn't been done yet, but I'm expecting it to happen. If I have faith, of course, then I am believing that what I want, I will receive. That whole process, then, is what we call an expectant hope. And if faith is the foundation and hope is the superstructure that's built on it, between here and our union with the Lord, we have a hope that we'll be united with him one day. And when that happens, then we're going to have the fullness of what we have desired. Now, John says it this way. John says that this is the hope that purifies. If we hope to see Jesus one day, then our lifestyle is going to be determined by that belief. We'll shun certain things in order to embrace other things. Uh, we'll stay away from those things that would produce in us anything that will cause our hope to deteriorate. In this world, you have lots of people that don't believe in God. And just because they don't believe in God, that doesn't make it true, but they'll do anything they can to cause your hope to rot. And as a Christian, we have to undergird our faith so that our hope will stand strong. I hope that one day when we get to heaven, all of us will be there. That's my desire. I, I don't want to get to heaven, and then one day look around and say, has anybody, has anybody seen so-and-so? And then somebody says, well, I hadn't seen so-and-so since we've been here. I don't, I don't want anybody to be able to say that about me. My hope is that all the people that we minister to will catch the first bus out of here and go be with the king because that's my desire. That's my desire. Now, Paul continues then. And you'll notice, having opened it up with those salutations and those uh, statements about the Lord, he speaks now directly to Timothy, his son. Now, who was Timothy? Let's quickly go to Acts chapter 16, and let's see what it says in verse number 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there. His name was Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. You can see in Acts 16.1 that Timothy was a Christian when Paul met him because he's called a disciple. He obviously comes from a mixed marriage. One was a Jewish person, the other was a Gentile. That's what it's saying here. Yet, somehow or another, the gospel came to Timothy. Now, we learn in another place that not only was Timothy's mother a Christian, but also his grandmother was a Christian. Because Paul said the faith that was in your grandmother and in your mother resides in you also. This means that Timothy, having been discipled somewhat in the faith, lived a life that produced, in verse 2, a good report. Now, this is what I hope people would say about us. I hope people would say, 
that, that we're good Christians, we live our lives in, in a good way. And the only way to get a good report of, from your brethren, you have to live the life in front of them. That's important. And when it comes to the things of the Lord, I've often wondered, what would other church people say about us, and what would we say about other church people? I've had uh, sometimes where I run into somebody in town, and they'll say to me, do you know so-and-so? And I say, well, yes, I, I know them. They'll say, well, yeah, they, they told me that uh, they, they attend your church all the time. And, and I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, okay, all the time must mean once every three or four months. Or, or whenever they go, that is where they attend. To, to have a good report amongst people that you fellowship with, we have to be faithful. We have to be faithful. A lot of people are not faithful and would not be well reported of amongst their own people. But because of Timothy's testimony, notice verse 3, him, Paul, would have to go with them. Now, you know as well as I do, you wouldn't want to take anybody with you that wasn't faithful at all. And if you did it one time, you wouldn't want to do it the second time. This is why Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways over John Mark, because on the first journey they went on, John Mark went with them, and John Mark quit when he got to a certain place and said, I don't want to go any further. I don't know if it was too tough. I don't know if he missed his family. I don't know if he missed Israel. But whatever caused him to quit that first time, Paul said, I don't want to take a chance and invest in him and then have him quit the second time. And I can tell you, I've met a whole lot of people that churches and movements and denominations spent thousands of dollars to help people train and learn languages to go to foreign countries, for people to go all the way to a foreign country, and after they've been there three months, they hate it so much, they turn around and come right back to America. After literally thousands of dollars have been spent. So as a Christian, we want to have a good testimony. Let us not be like those who are unfaithful. It doesn't matter whether one or a hundred or two thousand are faithful to come to church. Let us be the people that are faithful to God. If we're healthy, if we're in our right mind, if we're able to get our schedule clear and get together to be where the Word of God is and where other saints are, let's fellowship with the saints. Anybody can sit at home and watch television. And anybody can work a few additional hours on the job. But to take that flesh and discipline it and bring it to subject it to the Word of God and to fellowship with others, that's an important thing. Yeah. So in verse 2 of First Timothy chapter 1, Timothy is the recipient of this letter. And you can see where Paul calls him a son in the faith. Timothy obviously was young when he started walking with Paul, and Paul took him all around the world, different countries, paid his way, I'm sure, taught him about what it means to live a life of true holiness and faith and power and love, taught him all of that. And Timothy embraced that relationship and held on to it. Now, who have you had in your life that when you were younger, were mothers and fathers to you. You can probably think of certain people in your younger years that modeled for you 
the kind of wife you wanted to be or mother you wanted to be or Christian you wanted to be. This is what Paul is talking about. He's his spiritual son. Timothy is his spiritual son, not his biological son, but his spiritual son. And if God brings people into our lives that we can love and father and mother, we should. Because they're looking for that. They're looking for that. Paul said, you've had a whole lot of teachers in your life. He said that to the Corinthians, but he said, you haven't had a lot of fathers. A spiritual father or a spiritual mom is going to invest in you even when you don't want them to do that. Or even if you get angry with them about what's being said to you. A true spiritual parent is going to stand by you and love you despite yourself. That's And, and that's good. I thank God for all the people that through uh, my early years in uh, ministry were so faithful to teach me so much, to make a deposit in my life and to show me this is what was right, this is what was wrong. Even when I first got saved, I mean, the first two people that discipled me were Young as young as I was, oh my goodness! There were two ladies. One girl was a Baptist girl, and then the other one was what we called a holiness girl. And they certainly didn't have the same doctrines, but they had me on the telephone every night talking to me about what it means to walk with God, things I need to avoid, things I need to stay away from, what's appropriate for a Christian, what is good Christian behavior. So, I mean, I'm listening to all of this, and this day by day stuff was being discarded and thrown out when all the secular music, it was gone. And then everything else, just because they were showing me and teaching me what it means to walk with God. And, and I'm grateful for that. The pastors that I had... I didn't know a whole lot about supernatural things until some pastors started sitting me down and asking me as a teenager, have you ever prayed for somebody and seen something supernatural? I said, well, no. I believe it's in the Bible, though. And my pastor, Brother Hester, he started telling me stories about a a man named Arturo Skinner who founded the Deliverance Evangelistic Temple, network of churches back on the East Coast. And he'd tell me how that man traveled this nation, preaching on radio and in a tent. And Brother Hester said he was in a meeting one time with him in D.C. and watched him as he had all these people coming down for prayer. And a man that was blind, his eyes popped open. I'm sitting there, a little teenage boy, listening to this, saying, Wow, this is amazing. Then later, another pastor of mine just sat me down and told me stories about him teaching the morning services under the tent for A.A. Allen. And and so many cripples had walked in, all of that kind of a thing. And I just listened. And, of course, I'm sitting there hyperventilating, and my heart is pounding and pounding and pounding. I didn't know it at that time, but they were being spiritual dads to me. I didn't know that. And so many others molded and shaped my personality and what I believe as a Christian today. And that's why it's so hard to get that out of my heart, you know. Because I know that since we've been here, 
if if God hadn't done anything for anybody else, I know he's done a lot of remarkable and marvelous and supernatural things for us as we walk with God out here over and over again. And I'm grateful for that. So Timothy, being his son in the faith, you then see where he uses three words in reference to Timothy. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. What is grace? We know that is unmerited favor, something undeserved, something unearned. You cannot do enough good works to merit this. And if we could, we'd keep a list of all the things we've done, and we read it in the presence of God every day. We say, now, Lord, look, I've been awake for 14 hours. Let me tell you what I did today. But grace doesn't come that way. Grace is something that is bestowed upon you because you have a relationship with him and a covenant with him. Parents want to do good things for their children because they are their children. Even when they're adults and they may make decisions you don't necessarily like, parents still want to be able to bless their children. Parents who don't have a lot of materials, who don't have a lot of resources for birthdays, for holidays and Christmas and for weddings and anniversaries and all kinds of other things, parents still want to try to find a way to show love to their children. And this is how God is. Now, God's not lacking anything. And if if there's something we don't have and we need it, he can make it if he wants to. And he's God. But the thing is this. Anything we've received from him that we don't deserve, which would probably be everything, he does it on the basis of grace. The children of Israel received manna for 40 years. And the Bible says for 40 years they lived in unbelief. Only two people made it in the promised land, but yet for 40 years God did a miracle six days a week. Six days a week. That's grace. Well, what is mercy? Mercy is like compassion. Mercy is more than sympathy. Mercy certainly is not pity. Mercy is what the people cried out for when they spoke with Jesus in sickness. Lord, be merciful. Have mercy on me. They wanted to be made whole. The Pharisee that stood in the temple and and he was there beating his chest, and there's a sinner over there. And that man lifted up his eyes. Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. What was he wanting? To be healed of a broken heart, to be healed of a wounded spirit. So mercy usually is merely the means by which God brings some kind of blessing to you physically or spiritually. If you show mercy to someone that's poor, you're probably going to feed them or give them some money. But as you can see, mercy is an act. And on the other side of that sentiment is something that blesses the one who's the recipient of the mercy. So when we came into the kingdom of God and received the Lord's mercy, we were able to benefit from the riches of his grace, forgiveness, and all the stipulations of the small details of the covenant that are written in Isaiah 53 and in Paul's epistles. We then, having received mercy, should be merciful 
to other people. So what kinds of people need mercy? People that are hurting, people that are rebellious, people that are mean, mean-spirited, and God wants us to be merciful unto them. In fact, in Romans 12, showing mercy seems to be a gift. Some people are more merciful than other people. We should all be loving. Some people have a greater capacity for mercy. And then, of course, peace. And peace is not the absence of hostility. Peace is when you have a connection with God that allows you to realize there's no hostility or enmity between you and him. And so now you're not afraid of him because you have a relationship with him. Sometimes when people talk about Adam and Eve, they'll say when Adam and Eve sinned, God stopped talking to them. Well, that's not really true. In fact, you'll recall the scripture talks about the Lord visiting Adam and Eve in the cool of the day when Adam and Eve were hiding in their sin. And then later, when Cain killed Abel, they had another child, and she named him Seth because she said, the Lord hath appointed me another seed, which means if God appointed her another seed, she never stopped talking to God. She never stopped believing in God. She accepts this new child as a gift from God. And so the relationship was there. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, but you don't have another record of them sinning again. I mean, they weren't perfect. Don't misunderstand me. They, they were like any, anybody else. And I'm sure somewhere there, there were shortcomings and things like that. But there's not a record of it is what I'm saying. There's not a record of all of that. But then if you, if you think about verse 2 again, we have peace with God. And because I'm at peace with God, now we can have peace with one another. If, if I struggle to have peace with God, then I'm probably a troubled person. And you know when you run into troubled people, they'll ask you questions like this. How, how can I deal with the rejection that I feel every day? Or how do I deal with this shame and this guilt that I'm dealing with in my life? What do they say? I don't have any peace. I can't sleep at night because of what I'm going through. And grace, mercy, and peace comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Since they're the ones that provide it, we then have to share the story of Jesus Christ so other people can receive that peace. In the midst of the storm, Jesus laid down there and was at peace while he was asleep. And everybody else is up there with buckets trying to get the water out of the boat, and they're screaming and they're yelling and they're shouting. And finally, when they came down there to wake up Jesus, with hair sticking to their faces and them probably halfway hoarse because they've been yelling at one another, when they finally woke him up, they disturbed his peace. He was resting happily. You ever had somebody wake you up when you didn't want to be woke up? Yeah, yeah, see? Yeah, see, that that has happened occasionally. Now, the good thing the Scripture says the Lord, he doesn't slumber or sleep, see? So all I'm trying to do when I wake people up is help them be more godly. That's all. If you ever hear me screaming your name or calling you early in the morning or late at night, I'm trying to help you be godlier. That's all. That's all it is. Okay, look at verse 3 then. Well, Paul says, I asked you to stay at Ephesus. Now, why is this place important? Ephesus is the place in Acts chapter 19 where they had revival 
and the riot simultaneously. Paul comes into the area of Ephesus and he finds 12 disciples and he says to them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? They said, We hadn't even heard about any Holy Spirit. Well, Paul says, Well, how were you baptized? They said, Under John's baptism. He said, Oh, no, that, that won't do. You need to be baptized. And we've got to get this done the right way because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit has provided for us our means of redemption. So he laid hands on them, and the Bible says the Spirit of God came upon them. They spake with tongues and prophesied. So somewhere in the teaching of the old church, when they dealt with baptism in water, they still talked about the importance of the Holy Spirit and His presence in the believer's life in bringing about regeneration. Once Paul prayed for the twelve, it says that he hung around in that area for at least two years, at least two years or so. And uh, the teaching was so good and the move of God was so strong that they brought to him handkerchiefs and cloths. And he laid his hands on them and prayed over them. And the Bible says when they took them to people that were full of the devil, demons came out of people, and sick people were made whole. So this is why you find people today who sometimes still will anoint prayer cloths or pray over prayer cloths and request them so that they can take them to a loved one. Now, you, you avoid anybody who's trying to make a merchandise of that. If there's somebody running around saying, look, i got a, a batch of prayer claws up here. I've already prayed and fasted over them, and each one of you can have one if you give me a $10 bill for each cloth. You just avoid that. Find your own cloth and pray for it yourself, and then give it to somebody. So Paul wanted him to stay there, because when Paul went there, as I said, he had a revival and he had riot. There was a young lady who was a psychic or a witch. She had the spirit of divination. She had a familiar spirit that allowed her just about to tell people's fortunes, to tell about something personal in their lives. And Paul saw this little girl, and she was following Paul around, and he got so grieved by her presence that one day he turned and pointed at her and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. Instantly, or I should say that same hour, that little girl was made whole. The reason that's important, it demonstrates that Christians have authority over the devil. Not just apostles, but Christians have authority over the devil. Once the little girl was delivered and she no longer could function by the demonic power, her handlers couldn't make any more money off of her. So they then stirred up all the people in the town and said, look, this man is here preaching and people are giving their hearts to the Lord and if we keep letting this new religion grow, pretty soon we're going to have fewer and fewer people following Diana in our religion and then after all, I mean, we're up here making these little statues and we're making these little miniature gods for people to take home and keep in their home. We can't make any money if all of these people are leaving our religion and going to Paul's. So they stirred up folks and they started a riot and they were attacking people 
physically, and they drug some folks into um, into the midst of counselors and uh, you know like magistrates and people like that. And when it's all over, Paul and them have to just about escape for their life. And it was in this place in First Timothy one verse three that Paul asked Timothy to stay. Now, if I was Timothy, I'd be wondering, do I really want to stay in a place this volatile? These people do not like Christians around here. Now, there are Christians in this area, but there are a whole lot more that do not want us here. And I've got to ask myself, do I really want to stay? But because he had been discipled by Paul, he had lived with Paul, he decided, I'll stay here and do what Paul did. I'll labor in the faith, even if it means I'll be persecuted and difficulties would come. So he stayed in Ephesus, and you can see in the next clause of the sentence, Paul went into Macedonia, that's Greece. So he would have sailed across the sea over to the other side, or he would have traveled by land and went up and come down into that region. But he said to Timothy, here's what I want you to do. The latter part of verse 3. I want you to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Timothy had been with Paul long enough to know what he believes. And some of you have known me long enough that if somebody out on the streets would ask you what does Brother Darrell believe about this or about that, you could tell them. You would know. And same thing with me, with, with some of you. I would know exactly what you believe, having spoken with you so many times. Well, he's to teach no other doctrine. What doctrines then was he to teach? He's to teach what the first century church believed. Remember, at this time, there were no denominations. There was no Roman Catholic Church. There was no Greek Orthodox Church. There was no Russian Orthodox Church. At this time, you had fellowships scattered all around the Mediterranean region and in different parts of South Southwest Asia and the Middle East, as Christians scattered abroad because of the persecution, they gathered, and when they gathered, somebody became a pastor, and these individuals then did the work of the kingdom. And Paul, he is giving his time primarily to the churches that he pioneered. Remember, this doesn't cover every church that was in existence at the time. There were a whole lot of churches, a whole lot of Christians. On the day of Pentecost, remember, 3,000 people got saved. 120 people spoke in tongues and languages of people from all kinds of different nations. Some of the people who were there who became Christian went back to their countries, and we don't even know what happened with the Christianity in their country. We don't know. But I suppose they'd maintain their faith. But Timothy is to teach no other doctrine. And he's supposed to teach what he learned from Paul. So all of us then should know what we believe and be able to communicate that to other people. So, so here, here's the question you've got to think about when considering yourself today in this century and those folks in the first century. In the first century, the church preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they preached the gospel, then shouldn't we preach the gospel now? Yes. If in that first century church they told men that they should repent of their sins, 
shouldn't we in the 21st century tell people to repent today? Absolutely. If in that first century these people prayed, and when they prayed, they expected God to answer, shouldn't we pray today? If they prayed, they believed and hoped for and expected divine assistance, divine intervention, divine help. That means if God gets involved, that makes it miraculous. And if every generation is going to do what they did in the first century, then we should be able to believe today what they believed then. The same God. Did God save people from their sins and produce born-again people in the first century? Yes. So we should expect people to live transformed lives now when they hear the gospel and start walking with God. It should never be somebody converting to a church or converting to a lifestyle where they act religious, but a truly born-again person should resemble the Christians of the, of the Bible. They believed in healing in the first century. We should believe in healing in the 21st century. People were filled with the Spirit in the first century. People should be filled with the Spirit in the 21st century. People had visions in the first century without even pursuing the visions. So today, we don't tell anybody. We don't teach anybody. We don't instruct anybody. Go out and try to chase after a vision from God. We just tell people to live for the Lord, but if God divinely comes into a person's life supernaturally in a dream, why would that be a shock to anybody? He did it in the first century. Sin was present in the first century. Sin is present today. People were baptized in water in the first century. People are baptized in water today. People laid hands on folks in the first century and cast out devils. People lay hands on people today. We still cast out devils today. All I'm saying is that Paul said to Timothy, there in Ephesus, teach no other doctrine. Now, Paul has preached this all around the Mediterranean. He's demonstrated to us that no matter where you go on this earth, the same gospel will work in different places. It'll work in different homes. A mother who's at home has the same legal, biblical authority and power as a person appointed by God to be a preacher. The only difference is that a preacher is called by God to proclaim the Scripture in a public forum. But a mom or a dad at home can still use these same scriptures in the home, on the job, in the park, in the grocery store, and expect the same results. You can lead a person to Christ kneeling in the bank, just like you can lead a person to Christ and have them kneeling in an altar in the church. Wherever you find God, you can find God moving and touching lives. And so the last thing I'd say is that when Paul told Timothy that he didn't want him to teach any other doctrine, Timothy obviously must have received the doctrine, believed the doctrine, embraced the doctrine that was taught. That made him a good learner. So we, we really do need to pay attention 
when the Bible is taught so we can learn it. Yeah. And the same way you want your family members to listen to you when you're talking, that's how Paul wanted Timothy to pay attention when he was offering him instruction. Isn't it hard to teach somebody something if you're trying to communicate with them and while you're talking with them they're looking at their watch or talking on the telephone or punching something on the phone or something like that? Yeah, but very difficult. Or if you're trying to start a conversation because there's something on your heart and then somebody says, well, why don't you wait till commercial? You know, kind of, kind of difficult to have any kind of conversation because you can, you can talk to them while the program or something is on, but you know as well as I do, it, it's missing them. I mean, it's hit and miss. They might hear a word here and there, but they're not catching anything because they're locked in on something else. But if, if they get to their commercial, then I guess they can lock in on you. And they can pay attention to what you're saying. Paul is saying to Timothy, all that you've learned from me, give it away. You freely received. Give it away. Praise God. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this epistle, this first epistle to Timothy. It's filled with wisdom, filled with knowledge. I pray, God, you continue to speak to all of our hearts. Give us clarity every day as we read the Word of God. And let us be mighty warriors and champions for you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen, 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 Amen.